This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, exciting transit news for York Region, the United Way Social Capital Study, and women on the move. But we begin with our social skills post-pandemic. We are now at step three of our journey out of the pandemic that has put a chokehold on our way of life these past 17 months. Okay, we understand the updated guidelines and loosened restrictions because we visit the appropriate websites, we listen to our health officials, and we catch the latest news on radio and television. But what about the social, psychological, and emotional side of this pandemic recovery? Will we ever go back to shaking hands, kissing cheeks, hugging randomly, sharing a platter of nachos, or sipping from the same cup? Are we at liberty to ask, you fully vaccinated or have you ever had COVID? And what about those of us who have grown accustomed to self-isolation? Dr. Roger McIntyre, professor of psychiatry and pharmacology at U of T, an academic, a scientist and a physician. He joins us on the feed. Thank you for being with us, Dr. McIntyre. And it's great to be with you. So we understand physically, medicinally, I suppose, what we are supposed to do as we are moving out of this pandemic, but the social side of things, the social skills, that's really up for grabs. It's a big, huge question mark for a lot of us. Can we start with what you're allowed to ask other people at this point? Am I at liberty, Dr. McIntyre, to say to someone, have you been double vaccinated? Well, you know, I think that this is what's referred to as norm setting and what's acceptable to us as people as part of normal social discourse. And quite frankly, I think if I was to maybe look at a kind of a history as lessons approach to this, and what I would say is, is that human nature is predictably predictable. We're going to go back to the way we usually are. What I mean by that is, is that we are all feeling a sense of fatigue. Of course, the New York Times made the word languishing the word of the year. People are just fed up. They want to get back to their lives. People are anxious about their health, and, the, and, and understandably so. But what will happen, and if history predicts anything in the future, last I heard it does, is that people will go back to their usual ways. And I suspect there will be a time we're going to be, you know, have a high level of anxiety. Is the person next to me, they vaccinated? Should I ask them these questions? But frankly, I really find it difficult to imagine we'll be consumed with that question forevermore. And what about, have you had COVID? You know, it's something that has crossed my mind when I have been in a situation where I'm being introduced to someone, and I know it's such a personal question. The other question that sometimes comes to mind in an outdoor setting, if someone is a little close to me, I I, I feel I want to say, would you please put your mask on? And again, these are maybe big social no-nos. Well, they are, and again, it goes back to the kind of the norm setting again, and I think that what will happen is, I think many people are having that dialogue in their mind right now as they're sitting next to someone at a coffee shop or in a lineup somewhere or what have you, and no doubt they're having that that drop-down menu in their mind saying, should I ask this person this? If I do, am I committing a faux pas or not? That's a normal understanding experience. People are anxious right now. But, you know, I think that that's going to be... frankly, negotiated, for lack of a better way of saying it, on a case-by-case basis. But frankly, Anne, I really believe, I really strongly believe we're going to go back to how things were. Here's why I think that. A, tremendous faith in the predictability of human nature. And B, 
is that I still remember, and I'm sure you do vividly, SARS 2003, mm-hmm. and I still remember how I felt, how many people described how they felt, uh, albeit different. Uh, there were some similarities to what we're going through now, and we had similar questions you know, uh, around safety. Should I ask this question, ask that question? And things, in fact, uh, took their natural progression. And I suspect that will repeat itself. Let's talk about the physical side of things. And you know, even if, when you go to some churches before pandemic, before the pandemic, there was the, the passing of the, the communion cup, and, and people would sip from the same cup and, and probably 20 at a time. Are we going to be comfortable doing that kind of thing? Should we allow ourselves those kinds of social relaxations, you know, really, truly? And thinking about sharing a plate of nachos is what I described in the introduction. Just things that we took for granted before. Will we be able to do that? Will we be comfortable doing that? I've got two answers to that. I think that, look, in terms of your circle of trust and circle of people you know intimately, family and friends, there'd be no reason not to share, a, you know, in, in the near future, a, uh, you know, a popcorn together or whatever the case may be. But, you know, I think that one thing comes out of this as an unintended consequence, which I think would be a positive, would be greater embrace of public health hygiene measures. Mm. You know, just as an example, I'm a health care provider. I work at a hospital. There's plenty of data that show that even in hospitals, healthcare workers don't have even, you know, uh, you know, the highest level of concordance with washing hands and things like that. And we're people who work in that setting. So I think that if people are more vigilant, all people around hygiene and just, you know, uh, not just for themselves, but obviously re- respecting other people's health, that clearly is a desirable issue. Uh, but I think, look, I mean, uh, you know, I think the, the, the question that I had with a colleague recently was, what about buffets? And I think, look, I think that uh, this is a, a place where you share not just with people known in your circle of trust, but strangers to you. I suspect there's going to be some discomfort with that. But what I'm hearing, if Las Vegas is anything represented, I don't know how much Las Vegas represents the world, but the, the, apparently the, the buffets are packed. So uh, we will see how things go. And what about a situation like this? I meet someone, and we're outside, we don't have our masks on, and that person extends his or her hand to me, which is what we used to do quite readily, quite handily, if you don't mind the expression. What if I were to pull my hand back and say, no, I'm just not comfortable shaking hands with you? That person feels bad. I feel terrible having to say it. I, and I think everyone can relate to that. I mean, I think when people put out a hand, by it's, it's very nonverbal communication. The person's wanting to, is making a gesture of friendship or collegiality or what have you. And when you pull away, at least at glance, it feels like a rejection. But I think that there's two ways that that's handled. One is you, you pull your hand away because you don't feel comfortable and you don't follow up versus a follow-up that's understanding and respectful saying, you know, I... I uh, right now, not comfortable right now, but I appreciate the gesture and so on. I think that the latter would be reacted to by someone else very, very differently. And I think most reasonable people are reasonable. In other words, they would say, that's okay, that's understandable, and I, I can work within that, with, with, within that dynamic. But I do think that, uh, you know, people are just generally very respectful, and if, they, if you be respectful in how you communicate that, I think that should pan itself out. The bottom line is, and. People should not be feeling like they're obliged to do things they don't want to do, A, because they're not comfortable, B, they have an appraisal that they're putting themselves at risk. That would not be fair either. And people deserve their autonomy and their own preservation of their own sort of well-being.
What about the double kiss on the cheek or even the triple? In some cultures, some countries, that is a way of life. And, you know, it, it, again, it's are we able to go back to normal? Should we go back to normal? I would say categorically, yes. You know, at the end of the day, and look, we all recognize we want to be safe and we want to respect each other's health and well-being. But quite frankly, you know, for many people, uh, that type of gesture is very warm. It's very embracing. And frankly, it's a very positive gesture. It's good for their well-being, good for their quality of life, etc. And frankly, as, as human beings, embracing has already been shown in, in you know, very sophisticated scientific studies to be an essential part of our early development. In other words, we are wired as animals to embrace each other. It's part of normal development. Some cultures, of course, more expressionistic than others, uh, but it's part of who we are. We are social creatures, and we attach not only verbally, but also by touching each other. Now, of course, uh, there's different ways this is defined socially and culturally, but absolutely, I think that the positive of that will overshadow any concern. At the same time, we can recognize that obviously we need to recognize safety and hygiene and so on, but absolutely, my, my message, Anne, is let's get back to embracing sooner than later. Hmm. There's a survey that came out last week, Leger, and in that survey there were some interesting points. It suggests that 49% of respondents to this survey are comfortable with eating in a dining room of a restaurant. 31% are comfortable with going to the gym, 41% going to a cinema or theater, 60% attending an outdoor sports event. It suggests that 26% are okay partying in a bar or a nightclub, 37% with attending an indoor sports event, 34% with flying on an airplane. Those numbers confuse me a little bit because they're a little vague, but it does seem that that Canadians tend to be maybe split when it comes to what they should and shouldn't do, what they're comfortable, not comfortable doing. Yeah, I think that there's no question there's a split. There's been other surveys that are like that. And this reflects the differences between us in our assessment of risk and our assessment of vulnerability, and that's understandable. The other part about that, though, uh, Ian, is that this is a very fluid dynamic. In other words, if you were to look at uh, a similar set of questions after, say, 80 to 90 percent of the population is vaccinated, our counts are, di- are low, people are having some return to so-called normalcy, I have no doubt that those percentages will, will change in the direction of more comfort. So, so I'd like to break things into three. We have some people who see their risk as very minimal uh, uh, at, at all times. You have another group of people who see their risk as extraordinary at all times. And then you see another third of people are so- somewhere in the middle. And I think what that survey is reflecting is how these things usually pan out. But what we know from previous situation, healthcare crisis, and other types of scenarios that involve trauma, risk, and threat is that once the perception, once the perception of the threat is reduced, you'll see a, a real whipsaw, if you will, where people will go back to the usual ways that they relate to themselves in their environment. And this will be no different. One quick question. As a professor of psychiatry, I ask you this. So... On one hand, we want to go back to the malls, movie theaters, the gym, life as we knew it. How do we manage the anxiety that we may feel with those experiences? It's always about uh, doing a check. In other words, anxiety is, is, is a fear, and fears are two types. Fears that are based in rational uh, concern. If I saw a snake in front of me on the sidewalk, I'd probably feel quite anxious. 
but we shouldn't be anxious of uh, events that perhaps are not justified. I think that what, we're, what we've looked at, and for the last year and a half, can you believe it, Anne? It's been almost a year and a half. <laughs> no. I call it CUS, C-U-S, Chronic Unpredictable Stress. And CUS makes us all want to cuss, I'll tell you that. <laughs> we've had this unpredictable event. We don't know uh, one, one day to the next what's going to happen. We don't know when we're getting our lives back. And as we talked about, we don't even know who's vaccinated and who isn't. All of that is fertile ground for understandable anxiety. But here's just a word of reassurance. We are hearing vaccine rates in Toronto and Ontario and Canada that are pretty impressive. We were a little slow out of the gate, but we've really got our A game going on the vaccine now, which is great to see. And I think whenever you experience anxiety, especially when you're trying to figure out is this even rational or not, you have to look at what does the scientific evidence support. And the scientific evidence supports it is safe. It is safe to open the economy the way the government's doing it right now. It's measured. It's appropriate. And I think those are the kind of self-talk you engage in to mitigate the anxiety. So in other words, deep breath, one foot in front of the other. Dr. Roger McIntyre, Professor of Psychiatry and Pharmacology at U of T, thank you for spending time with us on the feed. What a pleasure. Thanks for covering this topic, and Take good care. And you as well. Thank you. So here's a question. How do you want your healthcare system to function moving forward? The results from an OMA survey. Tina Cortez with that story. Dr. Adam Kassam is the president of the Ontario Medical Association. Dr. Kassam, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, let's get to the survey. If you could take us through some of the highlights. What did the OMA learn about the healthcare priorities for Ontarians? So I think that all Ontarians throughout this pandemic for the past 16 to 18 months have had um, a significant change in the way in which healthcare has been delivered across the province, of course. We've had to completely restructure our healthcare system because of the need to treat COVID-related patients. And as a result of that reorganization, that restructuring, many patients have had, unfortunately, a delay in their care. In fact, what we've found in terms of our research at the OMA is that there have been 16 million points of care, which include diagnostic, procedural, and surgical procedures that have been delayed uh, over the course of the past 16 months. And when you do the math, that's actually roughly one for every Ontarian. And so those are significant and staggering numbers. And what we wanted to do at the OMA is to really figure out from the public what their perspective was on our current healthcare state, but also what they were hoping that our healthcare system could look like potentially down the line. And when we polled our, our, our members of the public, and to date approximately 4,200 Ontarians have responded to the survey. The survey will be open for the next two months throughout the summer, it's, and it can be actually accessed at betterhealthcare.ca. But what we found was that they had four top priorities, and we already alluded to one of them, which was addressing wait times and backlogs of care. And kind of hand-in-hand hand with that, the public identified another key area, which was access to physicians, which, of course, has very much to do with health human resources and these wait times and backlogs to begin with. Interestingly, the public also described uh, access to mental health and addiction services as being a top priority. And finally, they also talked a little bit about health care for seniors, including long-term care and home care, which we have seen be an issue over the course of the past 18 months and certainly within the first, first wave of, of COVID-19. So altogether, when we put that all together, what we find and what we understand is that Ontarians care about their health. They are concerned about how they can access their, uh, the, the health care resources. 
and healthcare providers, and ultimately the OMA is committed to finding solutions for all of these problems. But the issue of wait times isn't new. Do the results of this survey suggest that the system overall needs a review? You're absolutely right to suggest that there were wait times and issues with access prior to the pandemic and that, in fact, COVID-19 and, and everything that we've been going through, unfortunately, has exacerbated the problem even further. What we now have to figure out as a, a collaboratively as a system, and that includes healthcare partners like governments, like physicians, like healthcare institutions such as hospitals, rehab hospitals, and community providers, how do we work through this backlog of care in a in a timely but also in an appropriate way. Mm-hmm. And so while this has been an evergreen issue, I think one of the areas as we consider uh, the future state of healthcare is to think about this period of time as a transformation and what can we achieve during this transformation to get to where we want to go. So does that mean load sharing? Does that mean accessing different healthcare resources in a different way? Does that also mean using virtual care in a way that is, um, uh, is sustainable, appropriate, and effective? All of these different conversations that are happening in earnest are, will continue to happen, and we're excited that we will have the opportunity to share some of those solutions in the coming months once the survey is completed. How do we get caught up? How do we clear that backlog that obviously exists? So I think it's a complex problem that uh, that requires some creative solutioning. Uh, first of all, I think it, it requires collaboration. It means that we should have an ability to load share, and we should have an ability to perhaps um, use resources in a more creative way. And no matter how you slice it, I do think that this will require time and it will require sustainable investment. And and I think that that is that some of the keys for success and key, you know, key ingredients for success. And ultimately, what we have to figure out is what is the best pathway for patients to access but ultimately be navigated through our system. And I think this, transform, that's this transformative idea about uh, a future state of healthcare is exactly what the OMA and what physicians are committed to doing. So how does the OMA envision the future of healthcare? Where do we go from here? When I think about healthcare, I, I think about three major pillars. I think about prevention, and we're seeing that with vaccine rollouts, we're seeing that with COVID-19 shots in arms. And of course, we've had prevention be a significant pillar in the past when we're trying to prevent diseases or chronic diseases from happening. We also then think about intervention. So we think about treatment. So if if you get sick, you go to the hospital, you get treated, and hopefully things get better for your health. So we have prevention and we have intervention. And then finally, we have what, in, in my world, we, we, we and, I, and, this, and as a physiatrist, I care very, very deeply about this last pillar, which is rehabilitation. So how do we get people back up on their feet once they've had an illness or an injury, and what can we do to ensure that they can go home ultimately so that they can be cared for at home? And that's sort of this sort of concept of home care and perhaps even long-term care. So we have prevention, intervention, and rehabilitation. And we have a fourth pillar, I think, that we can start to drill down on now with the, with the pandemic, and that's transformation. So Prevention, intervention, rehabilitation, and transformation. And ultimately, this means coming together, collaboration, to try and get uh, the ball down the field. The pandemic, without a doubt, highlighted the deficiencies in our healthcare system, whether it was staffing or equipment, et cetera. Have the results of this survey been taken to the Ontario government yet? And do you think that there will be a substantive investment in healthcare? Well, we're proud that um, we are currently in consultations with not only the public and our members and other stakeholders, but also uh, political parties across the spectrum uh, in order to share what we found and share our data, share our research. You know, our our profession and and the OMA has been committed to working uh, with uh, our health system partners 
on the pandemic response, but even the post-pandemic response. And so we're encouraged by these ongoing conversations, and we are a committed partner to making sure that as we move forward, especially leading up to an election in the next 12 months, at least in Ontario, uh, that, that the political parties will, will heed some of our advice. And, and we're, we're excited that in the coming months we'll be able to share more comprehensively as far as our healthcare platform to all political parties, but also to the public, about where we think we should be going in the coming months and years. Dr. Adam Kassam, President of the OMA, thank you for sharing your time with us. My pleasure. Thank you. After the break, public transit makes another stop in York Region. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Getting more people moving is the key to success when it comes to the growth of York Region. Jim Lang on track with public transit. Well, for a lot of people, this is a paradigm shift for transit and movement for the region, not just for a few years, but for decades to come. Both the province and the country announcing advanced plans for the Young North Subway Extension to talk more about this game changer for transit and just life in York Region in general for the next few decades. Thrilled to be joined by Wayne Emerson, York Region's Chair and CEO. Wayne, how are you, my friend? Well, good morning, Jim. I'm very well, thank you. And how about you? Well, well, good. I mean, I, we've been on this radio station. I've been here since day one, and we're eight years in. And, you know, the thought eight years ago that there could be a subway up Young Street from Finch into the region all the way up to Highway 7 thought, well, that'll never happen. But so much has changed and evolved in the region to get to this point. When did the seeds of this big tree growing get planted, Wayne, that we could see this where this is actually going to become a reality? Well, many years ago... Uh Jim, we've been working on this subway for a long time. It's the most heavily used uh, with buses, and we think it's a great opportunity to uh, put the subway in and, and, and get people moving. The issue, um, it, it's still a, a little ways away, and uh, but we are moving Yard 6 thanks to Premier Ford and Prime Minister Trudeau uh, for putting the funding forward and uh, and making this happen. So on on uh, last week, the announcement was strictly to do with the uh, Clark Station, which is what uh, is needed. So now we're we're starting to move uh, move the yard six, uh, Jim. I, I I feel very confident, and I know Phil Burster and and Metrolinx and uh, Minister Maruni are doing everything they possibly can to move this forward. And and that's the thing I think for the listeners and everyone in the region they need to understand Wayne that these things have to be set in motion and the you know, Clark Station and all that because then you have to dig and all that and before we actually get on the subway in the region and the Young Extension that could be ten years from now. You're 100 percent right, and I think that's the game plan. I think they're trying to get it done by 2030. 31 within a 10-year decade. Once you, we're, we're a little away from putting the, the shovels in the ground, but we are, uh, we are getting, we're getting the planning done. Um, York Region Rapid Transit Corporation Board will be making the decision going forward on on the on, on whether the route and the stations, the number of stations, and uh, I know the staff at York Region Rapid Transit will be looking at the densities, the growth around the stations. So it's all coming together, but it's uh, we're still in the in the working progress going forward. And I know I know there was some grumbling from certain segments of the population in the region when the Viva Rapidway construction was going on, but now you can see how it's all coming together where everything will 
fee towards the subway at Young North and the Vaughn subway stop. Yeah, you can see how, how Vaughn has really uh, sprung up of all both happening around Vaughan, and this will be the same in the in the Young North Subway extension. So we're uh, we're looking forward to it. It's, but it is it's, uh, it takes a while to to uh, plant these uh, plant these things seeds going forward, Jim. But uh, I know we're moving in the right direction. But I have to say, I really want to put echoes, thank yous to the province and the federal government for all the work they've done, and they can see the vision that York Region has seen for the last you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And I guess that's that's the part of the job that people don't see what you do as the chair and CEO of the region is you have to be a, a, bro, de, a you know a deal broker, deal maker with the province, with the federal government, with people of different political stripes to make everything happen. Yeah, it, it's it's um, you know you, you you work hard at it. You go you know you, we have to look to the future, uh, Jim. Uh, politicians nowadays, when we sit here at the region, we provide all the heavy lifting, servicing for water and sewer, major transit, housing. Uh, social services, but we have to look to the future 10, 10 years down the road because it will be here before you know it. And uh, like we did with Viva, uh, thanks to Bill Fish's leadership on that one, he's, uh, we've uh, you know got a great system going across there, but that took a long time also. But it does take time when you're, when you go, when you're into, into major lifting like we are doing at the region. And I start thinking about this, Wayne, that, um, you know, with more subways and more go trains and, I'm, you know, I'm driving a hybrid car now and more electric cars, environmentally, the 5, 10, 15 years from now, York Region will be a much better place, as you say, with all those buses off the road. Yeah, that's the big thing, uh, Jim. Uh, we've got to get the climate. The climate is changing, as you know, but we've got to we've got to start to do what we can for the environment. And that's one of the big keys going forward. And I know that's uh, big with the province and the federal government. Now, with when these subway stops are open, and you just had alluded to growth earlier, it's, I guess that's also part of the master plan as these things get ready, that there will be growth around these hubs of all these different subway stops going north of Steeles? Yes, that's the main thing. That's what will help uh, pay for those stations and help pay for the subway. So the growth's right there. So down out of your apartment or condo, you'll be able to go down a, another level, get on the subway, and you can go uh, to downtown Toronto, work to watch a, a ball game or go to a restaurant or theater so that's the key we want to move people in the best way possibly can and and be and you know within reason and uh trying to get everybody on the subway so that they can uh, we can you know, like move people speaking of wayne emerson the york region chair and ceo about the uh Ontario and federal government plans for the Young North Subway and the Clark Station. And, you know, the last year and a half has been trying for everybody. And to see how you have worked with all the municipalities and all the people of different levels of government to steer us through it. And now we're, we're coming out of it. Where do you see York Region proceeding in the next six months as we're into step three now, Wayne, and getting back to business and people getting back on their feet? Well, we're hoping that uh, we can start. We don't think we'll be coming, our staff will be coming back to the building until probably the new year. We'll be coming, some will be coming in, but uh, we still want to be very cautious, Jim, going forward. I'm glad to see the businesses get a chance to open up and get, uh, especially the restaurants and the personal services going forward. So we, we know we want to be very cautious. Dr. Kirji has led been outstanding uh, in his field, and the medical officer health for York Region has done a great job going forward. And so we uh, we will continue to listen to him. Dr. Gerge is here until the end of September. He's going to retire and we'll be looking for a new medical officer. But we have to we still have to be cautious, but we still got to convince everybody to get vaccinated. And once that happens, then we'll be a lot better off, Jim.
Absolutely. And then, you know, by the time the subway opens, hopefully this will just be something we talk about as a distant memory. Wayne Emerson, the York Region Chair and CEO, helping steer together, um, juggling multiple balls politically in the air as we step forward to what could be a bright future transit-wise in the region with the Young North Subway. Wayne, thank you so much for doing this. As always, a real pleasure, and uh, have a good and safe summer. Well, Jim, thank you. It's always great talking to 105.9 The Region, and I really do appreciate all the work you've done to keep the, pe- keep the people informed. You've done an outstanding job, Jim, and I want to thank you and your staff for a great job, and thank you. And I hope you have an enjoyable summer and get some time off, because uh, uh, before you know it, it's halfway through uh, July, and uh, someone told me the other day it's five months till Christmas, Jim. So anyway, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll continue on, hopefully get some nice weather, and, uh, but we don't need any real... We need no more t- tornado, but we need some nice warm weather for everybody to enjoy. Well, you have a safe and happy summer, uh, Jim. All the good, all the best to you and everybody at the uh, at 105.9 in the region. Thank you so much, Wayne. Greatly appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Keeping social capital strong in York Region, Tina Cortez now with those details. Daniele Zanotti is the president and CEO, United Way Greater Toronto. Daniele, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Tina. Thank you. Before we explore the United Way's social capital report, tell us about the work of the United Way. United Way has been for decades now, since Mm -hmm. 1956, the largest funder of social services next to government. And so right across York region, Peel Region and Toronto, United Way invests in over 280 frontline agencies, big, small, in your neighborhood, providing support for seniors, working with the homeless, helping people find a new job, running after school programs. United Way is the connective frontline tissue where people go if they need help. And where does the funding come from for the United Way? Our funding uh, from United Way, by the way, the largest United Way in the world, right here in Greater Toronto, comes from the generosity of people like your audience, individuals who give. Predominantly, the past, United Way was through the workplace, where it's something you did while at work. But today, our funding comes from online donations, people who contribute to their workplace, people who make gifts through events, a whole range of opportunities for people, companies, labor, or government to give to the community where they live and work. Okay, so what is the social capital study, and what does the report measure and reveal? The first of its kind in York Region, the social capital study documents the vibrancy of the networks. So often, Tina, we talk about financial capital, how much resources, money, access to loans you may have in the bank if needed. But we don't talk too often about its social capital counterpart, the access you or a neighborhood has to resources in our community if they're needed. So social capital is all the things that make us feel connected and engaged with our neighborhood. How many neighborhood, neighbors we know by name? Are we comfortable knocking on a door, asking for help in moments of crisis? 
how many associations or clubs we belong to in our own community, and whether or not we volunteer or are civically engaged. And so social capital is your sense of belonging in your neighborhood. And all the research says that social capital improves our own individual and collective well-being in good times. In fact, social capital studies show that if, connected, if communities are connected, if you know your neighbors, if you volunteer, if you can access help in your community, you also have higher GDP growth, higher educational achievement, lower visits to ER or health facilities. So we know social capital builds strength in good times, but we also know that social capital is critical in getting us through crises because as COVID has demonstrated, connected communities with high levels of capital respond to crisis faster and more effectively. So this study, as I said, the first of its kind in York region, gives us a baseline of what the social capital look like in the region. And what we found is that social capital is strong in York region, from Georgina right through to Markham and across to Vaughan. But it is not equitably distributed. In other words, social capital in York region is strong for people. They say they've got high levels of trust with their neighbors, they're connected to networks, they belong to associations, they've got friends or agencies they can respond to and reach out to. But people with lower incomes and less financial security faced greater barriers to access social capital. So people in York region who had lower incomes were living in poverty did not necessarily know their neighbors, didn't feel comfortable knocking on their neighbor's door to say, I need a hand, weren't engaged in associations or clubs, weren't volunteering, and didn't feel their neighborhoods were safe. And that gap between strong social capital that we see in York region and then less access to social capital because of poverty is exactly the work we've got ahead of us as a result of this report. And how do you bridge that gap? Well, I think we need to be very intentional. Now that we've got this baseline data, we must be intentional as individuals, as agencies, as businesses, or as government. So if you're an individual, you can volunteer in your community, knock on a few neighbors' doors, get to know them, join a club or association so that you personally are building your own social capital in your neighborhood and you're bridging to other neighborhoods. For United Way, this baseline data will help us continue to invest in that front line of agencies where we know poverty is deepest, where we know people are not getting access to social capital. And so our funding, our network of agencies, grants for neighborhoods to come together will help build that social capital. For the municipalities and the region, it's important they look at this and say, what does it mean in my municipality? 
when we're building new subdivisions across York Region, are we also building social infrastructure for people to bump into each other, get to know each other? Are we intentionally building places for people to build social capital? Because what the report says is social capital is not a nice to have. It's not a soft skill. Social capital is, in fact, critical for us to individually and collectively be productive, healthier, and safer. And if the pandemic has shown anything, it's that people will wrap social capital around each other. A quick example. We saw a senior uh, reach out to a national radio program identifying that he had half a can of lentils in his fridge and no medication. The host on the program connected him to a United Way funded 211. The 211 operator kept the senior warm on the line and then connected the senior to a local agency who dispersed a volunteer with a trunk full of food supplies and a community health worker. Within minutes, mm. the health worker, the volunteer, weave through the streets, knock on a basement door, a senior with phone in hand still answers, and those volunteers and local agencies connected him with some neighbors, checked in on him daily, and ensured he got both of his vaccines. Now that we know where social capital is strong and the abundance of social capital in York Region, and we know the deficits that exist as well for those living in poverty, we've got an opportunity to wrap social capital intentionally in those neighborhoods that need it most. Because only then will York Region be strong if it's strong for all. So are the multiple mayors across York Region, the cities and towns across York Region, are they recognizing this study? They have, well, undoubtedly, as you may know, United Way partnered with the Regional Municipality of York, York Region Police, and the Wellesley Institute to put the study out. And we are continuing to have conversations with all of our partners, with all of the municipalities. The report and the findings have been shared right across York Region. And we want it to be the anchor, the catalyst for conversations, not only in how we support those that don't have access to social capital, but how we continue to build a strong York region for all. And so mayors, elected officials, health professionals, agencies can all use this baseline data for our work as we move forward. Now, these were pre-pandemic findings. How do you think the pandemic changed communities and their residents? I think we've seen, as per my example with a senior, we've got many examples across York Region where COVID hotspots, those neighborhoods most impacted by COVID, interestingly, though not surprisingly, those neighborhoods also often had the highest number of people living in poverty, highest number of people that were precariously employed. What we've seen is that People wrapped social capital around those neighborhoods. We dispersed volunteers. We hired neighborhood ambassadors through our frontline agencies to go into those neighborhoods and provide support. 
So I think COVID has demonstrated our frontline community agencies have done great work building trust, collaborating, and strengthening social capital. I think we've also seen an outpouring of generosity, people wanting to volunteer, both physically, if safe, and online, and people donating as well. But I think we must be intentional to also understand that those most impacted by poverty were also disproportionately impacted by COVID. And if the report tells us anything, it is that we must, with laser-like precision, focus in on those experiencing poverty in York Region and ensure they get access to the supports they need to move up the social mobility ladder. Think about it. Mm -hmm. A young person, unemployed, living in poverty. Who do they reach out to as a network for their first job? What kind of jobs might they be able to access? And so if we could wrap that young person with neighbors that they know, a network of people that could mentor them, agencies who could help them find that first job, their movement up the ladder in York Region will be greatly enhanced. That is the work ahead of us, building on the immense social capital that York Region has to mitigate the risks for those who do not have the social capital because of their economic insecurity and living in poverty. If our listeners want more information or want to contact the United Way, where can they connect? Visit our website at unitedwaygt.org or Twitter at UWGreaterTO. Daniele Zanotti is the president and CEO, United Way Greater Toronto. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Great conversation. A pleasure. Thank you. When we come back, women embracing change. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. Vita Nash Time has been a huge success in the cosmetic industry worldwide for more than three decades. And as she approaches the glorious age of 60, Vita has had an aha moment about coming of age, growing old gracefully, and putting her best face forward. Vita Nashtime, the co-founder of Pinnacle Cosmetics, is here now to share her philosophy, her joie de vivre, and her forward-thinking movement. Welcome to the feed, Vita. Good to have you with us. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. How do you feel about turning 60? That's going to happen in 2021. How are you feeling about that? I am really excited, and if somebody would have told me that I would be feeling this way, I would have been shocked, but I am looking forward to the next 30, 40 years, God willing, and I just think the best is yet to come. You have worked in the cosmetic industry. You're very successful, and through most of your life, or at least more than half of it, that's how some people see it as a cutthroat business, a bit of a superficial business. How has that affected your ability to grow old gracefully, to be in the cosmetic industry? Well, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting situation because uh, in my industry, I did a lot of trade shows and I met a lot of different women. And 
there was a commonality as as I was going through the years that we we feel apologetic of how we appear. There was this common thread of when I would have a conversation with a woman at a trade show, the first thing that somebody would say to me is, oh, I haven't done my hair or, or I haven't got my lipstick on. There was always an apology, and I thought that was such a, a strange thing to to do to somebody they've just met. And yet it happened over and over and over again. It's something that that jarred me through the years. You know, it's interesting you talk about that and and it, it, people are almost defensive because they wonder mm-hmm. how you are going to look at them. So how do you look at the rest of society when you look at young men and women, when you look at middle-aged, when you look at people closer to our age, what goes through your mind? I don't, and the funny thing is, I, I'm not looking at someone's physicality. I, I'm, I'm really not, and I know that that's what they're thinking. Um, and so then I wonder, does, is anybody else really thinking that of me? It's, it's a strange society that we've created with just all the appearances and I think as I'm turning 60, what I realized is with each year, you, you gain more confidence. What perhaps you lose in the physical part, you gain in the mental part. And no one is talking about that. And that was, was so exciting to me was that we, we gain so much as we get older. And instead of becoming invisible, we should be celebrating that we're, we're more visual, that we're, that we're more out there, and the potential is, is greater, but no one is talking about it. So it's one thing to feel that way yourself. It's another to convince the rest of society that growing older, and I know that those are choice words mm-hmm. and not necessarily the mm-hmm. ones we want to use, but what else can we say? Aging, that aging can be a beautiful thing. How do we change the societal view of aging? I think it's, you know, I think what you see is what you become. Hmm. And if, if all we ever see, when I grew up, the role models were, you know, blonde hair, tall, thin, blue-eyed. And that was it. It was Farrah Fawcett. I'm dating myself, but that's, that was the role model at that time. There was no diversity. There were no dark skin. There was no brown skin. None of that was what was endeared as beautiful. And I think if, if we're only exposed to seeing one cookie-cutter mold, and if you don't fit that mold, there's a problem because then you don't feel you... You measure up. And so those role models, I bought into that. I thought, well, that's what is supposed to be beautiful. And so ageism wasn't even a part of the the conversation. Um, And now that I'm realizing if we what you see is what you believe, and if we change what we see, then, then it opens the door. It's like a buffet. You've got it's not, you're just not having white bread in a glass of water. You can have rye bread and pumpernickel and all these different types if, if you're exposed to it. And then you see the diversity. And then you see that there's more versions of beauty. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to get out there. There's not just one beautiful. We're, we're beautiful in all different ways. 
and, and I can feel the movement happening. I can see the cracks in the surface. Forbes just came out with a magazine uh, t- saying that they're, the women of 50 are now, you know, we're not, we're ready for the second and third chapter of, of, these, of the book of life. And how exciting is that? So I know I'm not the only one feeling this way. And I know that if we collectively uh, open the doors and start the conversation, there's, there, there's going to be a movement that there's no going back. And we shouldn't be invisible. We should be showing all types of beauty. And it's not even about beauty. It's just acceptance. So yeah. that, that's my goal. And that, that's a key word, acceptance. And I talked about your aha moment. And, and I think you and I shared the aha moment when we saw on the cover of a magazine, Elon Musk's mother. She is Canadian. Yeah. She is our age. I think she may be a little older than we are. Absolutely mm-hmm. riveting. And it was, yes, there was mm-hmm. the external beauty, but there was this essence about her and this mm-hmm. acceptance on her part, and it made me feel so comfortable about right. being a little older, a little wiser, like a fine wine. Because there was a time, oh, maybe 10, 15 years ago, uh, that I was looking. I was, I was really looking. So what are the next 20, 30 years going to look like? What am I going to look like? What, what am I going to do? Am I still going to be viable in the cosmetic business and I was looking at the Zoomer magazine that my girlfriend gave me and there she was Mm. not plumped not filled gorgeous silver hair and I for the first time saw my future with 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 excitement not with dread she she gave me she may open the door for me and my vision of what it could be with, with uh, anticipation and not dread. You know, all I had up until then was, you know, my grandmother perhaps. Um, and 10, 15 years ago, the only role models that I could find were Oprah, maybe uh, Marianne Williamson, um, Jane Fonda, who admittedly says that she still is not comfortable with... Uh, not going the artificial route. She, she feels most comfortable in that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but the problem I was having, there was no choice. We didn't have an option that, you know, if you don't plump and fill and, and do all the surgeries or, or whatever, you're, you're destined to, you know, just being, becoming invisible. And when I saw May and realized she's older than me, and she looks vibrant, and she was living a, a, a beautiful life. I, I, I just this can't be a secret. We, we, we should be yelling this at the <laughs> at the rooftop. This is something so exciting, and so I'm looking for role models so we can rally together and and really do something with this. A 35 year old, I can't have the conversation with, but I would so love if they looked forward to these. Strong, beautiful people, as I said, it's not just women. Strong people really embracing getting older and loving it so that they're looking forward to the future, not, not feeling they have to freeze their self and, and that you're only good and that you have an expiration date. You don't have an expiration date. And the more lines and the more things you accumulate, the better you are. And, and if you get to that finish line, all 
all done. That That's the goal. So you're leading by example and you're leading the charge. How can people, men or women, how can they join your movement? I started... I call this my passion project. So I started uh, Beauty is Difference. And it's, uh, you know, it's a small, organic. uh, I started doing blogs and I'm on Facebook and Instagram. And I'm not, I'm not selling anything. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not looking in this for any other reason than to really, I don't even like the word empower. It's not that. It's starting a conversation with like-minded, strong women and men whoever, there's not even those titles anymore. That's not even politically correct. It's whoever feels, you know, that they've had insecurities or, or anything about each year. And how can we talk about uh, being positive for everyone? And, and I find the more that I'm having conversations with people, I'm, there's, there's just this movement. So I, I write a monthly blog. I do posts three, four times a week. And it's just, I call it my fuel. It's, it's good food. It's good energy. And the more I read, I'm, I'm seeing there's, you know, there's other women. And it's not, it's not just about letting your hair go gray and, and the latest makeup tips to, uh, you know, for mature women and saggy eyes. That's not, that's not what this is about. This is about when you look in the mirror, you love what you see. Or even stop looking at the mirror because it's not even that important. It's more how you feel and the energy and the vibrations that we're giving each other. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds a little hokey, but it, it, it's, it's really about giving back and, and moving forward and really focusing on, on the big picture and the important things. And uh, I'm not saying don't wear a lipstick. I wear a lipstick when I'm by myself in my house. Because I like it. I, I, it. It makes me feel good and it's happy and it's bright and it's cheery. So it's not about changing anything. It's just me re- reassessing things. I feel it. I get it. I understand it. I embrace what you have just said. Vita Dash Time, thank you so much on behalf of everyone listening for helping us look forward to the rest of our lives. Really, really appreciate your thoughts, your your sentiment, your your philosophy. Thanks for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com for the free podcast edition. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.